Hello and welcome to the third episode of the second season of Facilitate Talks. For this episode, we have resumed planned transmission as we finally discuss the financial landscape for advanced therapy companies pitching private equity against strategics. To kick off today's session though, Anthony, what would you say private equities are looking for in the cell and gene therapy industry uh, and which would you prefer to have invest in your own business? I invest in my business. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know there were, you were offering uh, guests today. But <laughs> no, so I, I, that's a funny way of putting it, uh, which I don't often think about. You know, as as I think everybody knows, we do have a single private equity uh, investor in Dark Horse. Um, you know, I'll be perfectly honest with you. They they found us early uh, in the game, and you know, wanted a sort of preferred relationship with us. We work with many other private equities as well, and they're very happy about that. Um, and I would say that they, you know, they've been, it's been very, they've been a very supportive investor and a great investor. Uh, but I don't think, uh, today I will be opposed to either strategic or private equity, uh, in principle. And I think, uh, you know, we've, we provocatively put this as, ah, this is private equity versus, uh, strategics. Um, we want a want a good a fair fight today, but of course it's not like that, uh, as I think you'll hear today. Yeah, we I can, think we can talk about that after. We can talk about that after. Maybe I'll change my mind after the end of this conversation. <laughs> I think that is a great time to introduce our guest. So, who's in the red corner? This is going to be a great conversation, and it's a real pleasure for me to be, be able to introduce in this forum people that I've known for quite a while. Uh, but haven't met each other before, and that's the situation today. So in the red corner, we have Phil Vanek, uh, Phil's CTO at Gamma Biosciences, which has a relationship with KKR that we'll probably ask him about, because everybody's heard of KKR, uh, who's ever touched private equity, but not everybody's heard of Gamma yet. Uh, I've known Phil forever. Uh, he was wandering around Lonzo with a clipboard in, in Walkersville, Maryland, I think, when I first met him, and uh, he's been onwards and upwards uh, since then. He's had a deep involvement uh, in CCRM, uh, had a seminal role at G Healthcare, uh, you know, right before the Cytiva transition and now the Danaher transition, oh my goodness. And so it's a pleasure to welcome you, Phil. Thank you. And in the other corner is Joe LaPlume. Uh, Joe is, I think, you know, you're a lifer at, uh, at Charles River. I think you, you got a life sentence there. Joe's a JD MBA by training, uh, and he has been on the deal-making side of Charles River. Again, a company uh, which has just changed out of all recognition. I mean, I first heard of Charles River decades ago as, you know, sorry, Joe, the mouse house, right? Yeah. And now, uh, you know, you're, you're a massive Fortune 500 company, uh, doing all sorts of things other than uh, you know, the, the ever still critical in vivo studies that support our industry. So welcome, Joe. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to have you around the virtual table together. So, you know, Phil, maybe uh, you could just kick off by uh, explaining to us how, you know, uh, an honest citizen like you uh, becomes one of the barbarians at the gate. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. No, thanks for that introduction. It's a great question. I came up through the technology ranks, and so I've always had a passion for product launch, product development, innovation, getting new technology out to the market as quickly as possible. And over the years, through a variety of startups, as well as larger, as you mentioned, GE, Beckton Dickinson, you know, Lonza, these are large companies, um, realize that there's there there's this necessary or this need to bring innovation into these big companies. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear from Joe a little bit about how CRL does that. 
Um, and it's not always easy, right? Because large companies, very often, getting a product out the door is not easy. Very often you bring new products to the market through acquisition of a company or a platform, and then you introduce it and you leverage what the large strategic brings, market access, operational structures and the rest. Um, so for a technologist, I love that. I love the infrastructure, market reach, the ability to just have a, you know, a brand attached to your, you know, your logo where when you show up at a conference that everybody recognizes. Um, but the thing that I found was they would tend to invest in very niche areas that are very strategically aligned, obviously, uh, and didn't always do the best job getting those companies out into the market and launching them in a very fast paced environment, which we live in today in cell and gene therapy. So the only reason I have no, I cannot make a disparaging remark about any of my prior companies until we're off the air, obviously, but uh, <laughs> more seriously, it's like, I was just always frustrated by the pace at which products could get launched in some of these larger companies. So. I'll finish here just to say, given an opportunity to look at a private equity opportunity and KKR is a large investment uh, organization. Most people in the investment side will know them. Uh, and they took it upon themselves to take part of a strategic healthcare fund and build gamma basically from the ground up to address this post ventures world where small innovative companies get birthed and sort of developed. And before those companies are ready to be sort of acquired and subsumed into a larger strategic organization, we felt that there was this opportunity to bring the best of both worlds, capital, talent, technology, and build us something completely new and try to be as nimble as possible. It's so interesting when something, you know, again, I don't want to stereotype KKR as this sort of colossal behemoth, but not that many organizations in the country or the, or the, or the world, for that matter, can do what KKR is trying to do here. And I think uh, we'll, we're just going to really enjoy getting stuck into some more specifics. You know, uh, on the other side of, of, the, of the table, as it were, you know, Charles River has become an iconic uh, strategic in the industry you're in some senses relatively new to cell and gene joe uh, but i think behind the scenes you've probably been more active than most people realize and i'd just love to hear a bit of the history to be honest uh, of, of your company because it's a remarkable it's a long and remarkable history well th thank you um much of that's to do with my boss you know he's been the ceo for 30 years and he's the son of the founder so we've been around for 78 years and you're right i, I you know you referred to it earlier, as you remember, as the mouse house or the, the rat company, as some people say pejoratively, you know. <laughs> um, I'd say it still happens. It maybe stopped happening about five or seven years ago. I've been at Charles over 16 years, the last 10 of which working in M&A and strategy. And there's still companies I go into meeting and they're like, why is the rat company here talking to me? And it could be, you know, some in vitro technology or some AI, even though we're, you know, pretty much only 10% of the company today is really doing 10, 12% is really doing animal production, the, the historical heritage of the company. Um, and so through a, an enormous diversification strategy that Jim Foster, you know, has been doing since the company went public 20 years ago, you know, as he first vertically integrated into the CRO space and the testing, we just keep expanding that, you know, Historically, you think of the, you know, the, the mouse house, then you think of the in vivo testing. We built up a very big CMC testing capability around biologics, which is cell and gene as the new modality last five years, even though we weren't advertising that, that did come through, through M&A and or in, in organically and organically as well. And then we built up the early stage capabilities, 
which is discovery, even though people thought of that more in-house, we started to create an outsourcing early discovery way before lead optimization or IND enabling studies. So we had this early stage capability, regardless of modality, small, traditional, you know, traditional large molecule, then new modality, you know, new modalities was something we didn't have yet. And then we started to build up the capabilities in manufacturing. And most of this has just come from, you know, client interaction discussion. Our strategy is to really be able to go to any biotech or our partners in the VC world and say, anybody with an idea, if it's small molecule, um, traditional, mo you know, large molecule antibody, now selling gene therapy, wherever you are with ideation, early stage, you can come to Charles River, do the early stage manufacturing, do all the testing and bring that through into proof of concept and get into the clinic. And we can do that in an accelerated basis. So that's kind of the high level strategy, supporting both on the discovery and development and now on the manufacturing side. Uh, you, you spent a billion dollars this year on manufacturing for selling gene therapy, right? That right. By, by any standards, that's a lot of M&A activity. Yep. That's you, right. Is it, are you just getting started? Are you all done? Uh, what do you think? There's more to do. Yeah, there's, there's certainly more to do. There's certainly more to do. And, and one of the things that's interesting about what Phil, Phil, what you were mentioning, I'm assuming, as you said, Gamma is focused on somewhere in between VCs and private equity. Did I get that correctly? It's kind of early stage. And so in addition to the M&A, which you mentioned the, the billion dollars this year on manufacturing capabilities, we started a couple of years ago, a partnering strategy. So we've, we're investing in technologies and we don't always advertise the investments we're doing. Some of them we do one, which was distributed bio, which was uh, an antibody discovery platform, which is a next gen phage platform that we part made an investment in <clears throat> created an investment commercial partnership and then ended up acquiring it. Um, there's about 12 or 13 we've done of those and we've got just as many in the pipeline that we're negotiating with. So we're looking both at traditional M&A, Anthony, but also tech, enabled partnerships yeah. and i'd say half of those we're looking at are in selling g in the text to technology that would be early to go buy right because it's you know pre-revenue pre-profits and we see we see a lot of strategics acquiring a lot of different things each like you're you're really doing some serious mixing and matching of technology capabilities uh production capabilities even distribution uh, technology we see uh, at some strategic stuff like that. Um, I think, you know, and the, the really obvious immediate synergies as you start putting the pieces together, Joe. Um, but on the, on the other side, on the private equity side, Phil, do you feel you're sort of at a disadvantage there? Because can your, you know, can Gamma's portfolio companies ever be as tightly integrated as what Joe can fold together into his large strategic organization? I see yes and no. I think that the way our operating principles at Gamma are, you know, we, we like to bring companies together. Joe's right. <clears throat> we are investing a little bit earlier than a typical private equity might want to, but we are in this industry very technically and technologically focused. Um, we, we then sort of look at those investments and how do they best operate. And for us, you know, when we first started and, and Gamma's founded at the end of 2019, so we've only been in the business kind of through the COVID years. I joined just before COVID hit. Um, and, and you know, at first it was kind of be like, okay, we're going to buy these assets because they're good assets. They can operate as a PL, even if they're early in their revenue or pre revenue. Uh, we think they can be a great technology and have an entitlement to play in the market. So we, that has to be kind of this you must be this tall to ride the ride. That's the gate of entry. 
But beyond that, we started noticing that there are so many needs of these smaller companies that are, again, they're founded, they, 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 they are typically missing one or two pieces of the functional puzzle, right? They might not have a great operational strength, they might not have great commercial reach, they might not have some of these things. So we did start to recognize pretty early on that by bringing some of those capabilities up to gamma, legal, HR, those capabilities to kind of take that pressure off the operating companies, we could sort of leverage what gamma has become. And I think, Joe, you were alluding to it, you know, it, you can do so much, you can write different size checks, we can write checks up to a certain amount, um, we can structure our deals very creatively, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to the same operating principles, great products, great people, and, and, and just the ability to move product out and get products launched into the market. So we focus almost all of our energy on helping each of our operating companies get these products to market. So, I mean, I, I, I think you know, I want to ask you some basic hard questions here when you're looking at targets and then uh, I'd be interested in, in Phil's reaction to them and how much he sees things the same way and how much he doesn't. I mean, you're a publicly traded company, you're a, a massive P&L machine composed of, you know, ever, you know, a hierarchy of smaller P&L units, which can sometimes feed off each other, sometimes operate independently of each other, and both of those things can be good. Um, talk about you know, how you look at a business as being uh, immediately uh, you know, accretive to your top line and your bottom line. How important is that to you? Because you, you every quarter you have to answer to Wall Street, that's the, the cross you bear uh, for the public being able to trade your equities. Uh, what, talk to us about you know, the immediately accretive thing and you know, you, debt, you have to deleverage it, you have to deleverage it sooner rather than later. Do you feel that, you know, are these bugs or features all of these things in your world? No, it's, these are all facets of the analysis, the calculus you do when you're looking at the deals. I'd say before we get to that conversation about is it accretive both on the, the earnings, on the top line and the leverage and the deleverage portfolio, before we even get there, it's really about what's the strategy. Right? And, and then screening of the strategy, you know, targets and technologies against the strategy, you know, which is going back to what I said earlier, right? regardless of modality, we can help somebody from ideation all the way to get the proof of concept, right? So in that area, we look at the, the assets, the people, the culture, does the technology fit strategy? So I, I, you know, one of the things we always say at the company at Charles River is, you know, we try not to be opportunistic. We try to put a lot of thought into the strategy and the market opportunity, and then we screen against that rather than just chasing out something. So I just want to say that first. So assuming it goes through that filter, Anthony, about going through the five-year strategy, looking at the market opportunities and things we've identified, and then we come across that asset, that we're going yeah. to go pay yeah. a, a full price, you know, very full price for um use a euphemism, I'll use full price rather than use, so, <laughs> off, off, off. That, that caught everybody's attention, Joe, full price. I'd say it, it is something we do look at and it is part of our financial parameters. So when we do the deal, we have an IRR hurdle we're looking at, probably the, the same as Phil. You know, we're looking at return on invested capital. He's probably looking at it a little differently on the return on the investment, you know, some multiple, but we're looking at return on invested capital within, you know, a three to five year window <clears throat> to get to a certain number. And, and then it is going to be EPS accretive. So we, we have a history, anybody that follows Charles River over the last decade, we have a history of doing deals that are not dilutive. So if you go back six years ago, we had a, you know, mid single digit organic growth rate. It's now we tripled the size of the business and it's double digits. So we're trying to do deals that are accretive on the top line and are adding 
earnings, you know, that are creative, um, and we're trying to thread that needle. And sometimes, you know, it's a challenge, right? If you're paying an enormous amount of money, um, you make sure your your models are really good, and you've got this, you're getting those synergies um, to help get get that uh, accretion, particularly on the yeah. on the earnings. I think I think just for the benefit of some of the non-financial members of this audience, uh, I want to emphasize, and I think Joe, you'll you'll come back in after I say this, and probably Phil will have some comments too. Uh, this the modeling you do, the financial modeling you do, it's serious stuff. You know, you've worked with Gordon Dial uh, recently. You know, Gordon is a, a you know an architect and engineer extraordinaire. I think he uh, ran the numbers for the Celgene acquisition of Juno and some other really iconic mm -hmm. deals in the field. Uh, this is not uh, this is not back of envelope stuff. The models are amazing. Well, I, 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 these are people on my team. I'm 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 the kind of the sizzle, and people on my team are the steak, and uh, I'm I'm more of the sizzle person. They, they, we, we 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 we've had model. We worked with many of the investment banks, and we've had you know Annie on my team. You know, show their models to some of the you know the Wall Street firms, and they it's it's a really great model that we use internally. And then we have advisors like Gordon. That are fantastic and just you know, yeah, really just 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 super impressive stuff. And uh, it's 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 all I can say is it, it's complicated. There's nothing ever. Yeah, it's two it things. It's more than numbers, though. There, there no, is no, a bit it's, there's two things though, and then I'll, I'll I'll let Phil respond. I apologize. I don't want to take about anyways, but it is partly modeling. But there's always great. Everyone has great models. No no offense to my team. I think they're, they're great models. But one of the things that we do at the company, I don't know what other companies do, is we also have the same. You know, we take people out of the PL, we'll pull people out of the business and say, this is all you're going to be doing. So my, I have an integration team and the same team doing diligence is working six or 12 months on integration. Then we take somebody out of the PL, out of the, and their full-time job is working with my team. And I just give them over to them. They say seconded and they say, you lead integration. So you're running that. So, so everything we do in the model on an operating integration plan, synergies, we have project by project on numbers attached to them. The people doing the diligence and creating that plan are the people that own that going back to the PL, you know, for a year after the deal. And that has helped, you know, we think, in our opinion, it's helped us make sure we get hit those numbers. At some of my prior companies, that was the model. I think that works extraordinarily well, right? You 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 drive the accountability post-close of a deal and people sort of say anything I put into the model, I know I'm gonna have to live with that. So I think that is rule one, right? The you help you you let people who are building the models kind of understand they get better experience, they become better modelers too, right? It's that feedback. Uh, my comment about models is I've never seen one that was right. Uh, that doesn't mean that, right? But what they do for us is they make us ask really good questions, right? So you build a model from assumptions that you glean from your discussions and the people you know in the community, in the market. And then as you go through it, you know, the model is the model, but it's that ability to take an, a feedback or some information from the market and turn it into an insight when you get that kind of, the model suddenly becomes smarter because people have better experience. But the most important part for us is the model and perhaps this is where also where we're investing. It just drives that robust debate about: Is this where you would spend your own money? Is this, you know, how, how, are, is, how what's your level of confidence that this is going to create that tangible recurring value for the business going forward? So I love modeling. I like it as much as anybody probably on this call. But I love it because it drives the conversation around the assumptions we're making. Super interesting. All right, let's go shopping. Um, <laughs> come with me. Uh, what What are you in the mood for, Phil? What's missing? 
uh, in the field, what could use your, your KKR's hard-earned money, Gamma's hard-earned money? Uh, sure. what, do you, what are you looking out for at the moment? Well, without giving any specifics away, I can talk top well, on, at least, uh, right? If you see, all right, you want names. Here we go. Right. Oh, wait, I, I think I'm, wait, I'm on me. <laughs> <laughs> you get it? Okay. No, yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, so for us, right, if you see what Gamma's sort of building together, investment principles are pretty standard, right? We look for good quality businesses that can eventually, if not immediately, generate recurring revenue. All the things a P&L business would be looking for in these businesses. Um, we built kind of a... Uh, another underlying principle, which is we want technologies that are highly extensible and for the most part are play across the lowest common denominator. So we don't choose winners and losers in modality. We don't choose winners and losers in technology. We look for what's going to happen in the next three to five to seven years in cell and gene therapy. People will be doing cell line engineering. People will be doing cell selection. People will be growing and culturing cells. People will be purifying materials out. People will be purifying cells. So what are those enabling capabilities? that people will look at irrespective of cell therapy, gene therapy, vaccine manufacturing, biologics, RNA manufacturing. There are some technologies that can kind of play, the, to use the baseball analogy for Joe, right? You know, a, a very high caliber, in, you know, versatile inside fielder, right? An uh, inside fielder. I have no idea what you're talking about there. This is a cricket ball, not a baseball. Exactly, I know. I'm sorry. I had, <laughs> had to do that for you. No, but somebody, a versatile, a company that has a versatile platform that could be leveraged into any of these other modalities becomes crucial, right? So um, that way we're not caught betting on is cell therapy, MSCs, IPSCs, when do they come? We're just betting that, look, people are going to be taking cells, people are going to be putting things into cells, people are going to be purifying cells, people are going to be investing there. So what's missing for us, if you look at the portfolio we've built so far, which has cell engineering upstream and downstream, I'd love to get my hands on some analytics companies, right? Process analytics is going to be enabling to everything else. Um, you know, so things like that are definitely on our radar. Um, but we also want to continue to make like any other good private equity plays, find a core technology and then bolt on new cap capabilities, new talent, new regions of operations onto each of those foundational platforms as well. So there's plenty to go shopping for right now. What's on other than milk and eggs? What's on your list, uh, Joe? Um, I, a lot of what Phil just, I won't repeat it, but a lot of the things Phil mentioned is definitely on our list. Especially when it comes to um, needs in the marketplace, um, cell engineering for sure, purification, we're going to be looking at that. I'd say stepping back, and Anthony, you know some of this because we've talked about it. One of the things that drove our strategy to enter into some of the, the acquisitions we've done the last year is you know, we think there's a need you know, going back to the clients, you know, we, we work with all of them, trust and quality, expertise and guidance, integrated capabilities across analytical testing into manufacturing. So that's one of the unique things that we have, right? Where it's the world's largest early stage testing company. We think there's a nice interface. If we have the right technologies, again, I'm going to repeat most of the things Phil just said, we're looking at, along with capabilities that integrate that work that's happening in process development, in analytical development, and making sure we connect them, which we already have. And so it's really just about creating the trust, the regulatory expertise, and that integrated portfolio management. So taking on those technologies and putting into that system, we believe we're going to take some white space out of the timeline and have a competitive portfolio. So part of it is internal organic development that we're going to pull that together and then adding some of that list that Bill mentioned. 
And like like Phil said, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of things to do. Is, no it, is, it, is it? Are you just trying to build a you know in, in a strange sense a, a Vegas casino so nobody ever needs to leave the Charles River building? <laughs> you know you can really go from A to Z and you never need to step outside of at least your family. Of I know you're a family business, so it's kind of a nice analogy. Yeah, I, I think you know I, I've heard my boss. You know, he, he'd be in my ear right now. I think he hates the I, he hates the term one stop shop. You know, and I, and you've <laughs> met Jim Anthony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really about making sure we pull together the best science and the best capabilities program manager. If we can do that, and you know, our goal is to always be no matter how big we get to make every small biotech or every small company feel as though they're they've got these unique services and scientific capabilities bringing them through. Um, that's the goal. And that rather than be the Vegas casino so nobody can leave and not know whether the, what time it is and whether they're getting <laughs> oxygen pumped in. I mean, Jim is, Jim is one of the most down to earth and pragmatic chief executives I've ever met of any company of any size, but he also, uh, you know, he, he, he is that practicality tells you that it's easy to go to the mall rather than support your local corner shop. It's makes life easy. True. And, and, and to, to achieve the goal, it's going to be a lot of technology. There's mm -hmm. going to be a lot of technology capabilities pulling this all together. Cause we've seen even some of the synergies, even from just Cognate and some of the deals we did just by happen chance, you know, so we have a big analytical capability as, as Phil knows and Anthony, you know, from the testing and we're getting calls in BioA early, discovery clients and saying, Hey, can you manufacture this? And they didn't even know that we own CDMO capabilities and these are selling genes. So there's, there's a lot more synergies and connectivity that we can do with technology to bring this together. And I think the clients need this. I think that's what they're looking at. I, I agree. It's, it's not all about just buying a bunch of clean no, rooms. Not, no. There's so much more to it than that. Although having a bunch of clean rooms is uh, is a really good thing to have these days. Right now. So I, you know, much as I, I, I love, you know, a bit of fireworks in this in this podcast and I, I want to have the you know the evil private equity against the noble street. <laughs> I can't remember maybe it's the other way around. I can't even remember now. But it sounds almost as if remember Anthony, I am a lawyer, so I'm probably very <laughs> young. Yes. Uh, I'm not you're a lawyer, Joe, but you're one of the nicest lawyers. Uh, everybody hates lawyers until they need one, right? Isn't that what they say? <laughs> so look, I mean, is it as simple as you, you should be just buying stuff off Phil? And, you know, Phil's the feeder farm and you uh, you use strategics, plural, whoever it is. And we're, you know, we're all, we all know this, 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 this CMO strategics, there's your sort of strategic, there's a dozen strategics out there. Should they just be forming an orderly line outside the gamma building, uh, Phil, or is it more complicated than that? It doesn't seem like you are, I don't feel any antagonism. You do bid against each other sometimes, right? Right, like I said, or like jokingly earlier, that you know the enemy of your enemy is your friend. So yeah. there is no animosity between strategics or PE or VC for that matter, right? We all serve a different part of the ecosystem. We have our different investment philosophies. We've got our different expectation of outcomes of those investments. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, the number of partnerships we have today at Gamma with strategics, whether legacy from companies we've acquired or new ones that we're forging, that that's our lifeblood. At, at the end of the day, if, if you set aside the investment side, operationally, we've got to run good 
businesses. And to run a good business, you've got to, you know, show up at work. You've got to find technologies that make people's jobs easier to do, right? That's why people buy products from you. You've got to build that sustainability into your business. And at the end of the day, we want to find partnerships that make sense. So if we forge a partnership with Joe today on this call, you know, I'm, I'm ready. Um, you know, but part of that could be, hey, let's start talking about what an exit for Gamma or other companies might look like in the future. So, you know, we, we do maintain optionality in each of our portfolio companies intentionally, um, but our goal is to, again, build really rock solid businesses at the end of the day. So one of the things we, we see recurring as a debate in the field just again and again and again is the manufacturing capacity issue. There was that sort of iconic article where it finally made the front page of the New York Times, so everybody decided it must be true, uh, that, oh my gosh, we're short of vector manufacturing capacity. And then, uh, you know, a few people built and a few people expanded. Oh my gosh, we've got, we've got a glut. Uh, we've got far too much manufacturing capacity. I mean, Joe, obviously you slapped you know, a stone cold billion on the table for manufacturing capacity. Uh, and uh, I think it is public information that you're continuing to expand that capacity. So uh, you clearly see a pretty strong sight line out for the next few years at least, right? We do. We, we do both on the cell and the gene side. I'd love to hear what Phil's view. We, 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 we're, not, we're not looking just for two or three years to, to look at a supply demand gap in either cell manufacturing capacity and or you know, vector or plasmid capacity. What we're looking at over five or 10 years and looking at all, all modalities in, you know, on the manufacturing side and the testing capability. So we, we've, we're pretty bullish on the long-term, you know, cell and gene space and what that means for capacity, both in manufacturing and in testing, right? You need both. And we're, we're, we're looking at, we're at, and as you said, Anthony, we're public, we're expanding both the things we acquired, we're expanding it both in, you know, in the United yeah. States and in Europe, and yeah. and our testing cap capabilities in Legacy Charles River, we're both expanding in the U.S. and in Europe, on both sides, both on the you know the bio early testing and CMC testing and manufacturing. I'll just add, like for, we talked earlier about modeling, and if you believe any of the models, the we haven't reached that inflection for capacity and need. Like Gamma, we don't work on the therapeutic side. We don't work on the manufacturing side, like CDMO. No, that's not what we are. We are a tools and tech company. My operating philosophy is pretty simple. I think what is going into the manufacturing capacity from a production standpoint, the equipment, the chromatography, upstream, downstream, all of the technology that will produce a dose, a therapeutic dose in five or 10 years will look very different than it does today. But our, my argument is that we're, we're doubling down on the technology to make stuff, believing that these will be in clean room manufacturing capacities into the next generation of production. So I, I'm fully bullish as you guys are that uh, manufacturing need is not going to go in any soon. It might just look very different in five or 10 years than it does today. It, it will look different though. There's no, there's no doubt. The manufacturing was, you know, and Anthony, you and I have even talked about that a number of times. Yeah. The way manufacturing is done, whether it's allo or auto and <laughs> you know, the different permutations, it's going to look different in five or seven years. There's yeah. no doubt about it. No, I, I completely agree. I think uh, you know, I'm, I'm thoroughly sick as we all are of the allo versus auto uh, debate. It's going to be both. It's, that's pretty clear to everybody, I think. You know, there's this sort of troubling drip feed of bad news from high-dose AAV and uh, some of the retroviral programs and even the lentiviral programs. Personally, I wish, uh, and, and if they're listening, this is, this is sincere, I wish regulators 
uh, would regulate more in the sense of providing you know clarity i think what the industry is sort of hating now is the lack of clarity around things like high dose aav uh and impurity levels and and and, and genome dose levels and so on and so forth i think that that's uh, a positive that could help the field but yeah i think the bottom line the way we see it is we look to commercialization uh we sort of you know we we, we half joke that we're not interested in how many inds are filed uh we're interested in blas and maas these days and this year you know for the first time since 2017 we're going to have uh you know three four five uh commercial approvals in this field not even counting line extensions and uh once that happens and once solid tumors are hit uh, I think, uh, honestly, I predict there's going to be a manufacturing crunch when a few big tickets that have been delayed, like the, you know, the, the eye advances and the biomarins of this world, they're going to get the ticket. It's when, not if. And I think that's going to be um, uh, another big change in the nature of manufacturing because there's a big difference between clinical manufacturing and commercial manufacturing. And characterization, Phil, you know, the ability to characterize those products and demonstrate that the consistency of their manufacturing and so forth is going to become a very big deal. So I think from that perspective, uh, Gamma um, came you know, not, a, not a moment too soon. Okay. One of the attributes of deal-making, and you two, uh, your, your careers are focused on deal-making, it, it's a high-touch business. <laughs> and uh, as we said earlier uh, in the podcast, models are models and models are great. We all love models. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, cliche though it sounds, there's a handshake involved, there's multiple handshakes involved. Uh, we're 18 months into the pandemic now, uh, we're, we're gradually, I feel we're sort of crawling our way out of it rather than leaping out of it. Uh, how, how, how the heck has it been? Uh, you know, we've, we've been with you on, a, on one or two deals, show, uh, so we sort of know what it's been like, but I'm interested in both of your perspectives, 18 months in, in, in doing deal making through the Zoom tube. Yeah, maybe I'll start and hand it off to Joe just real quickly. You probably have more to say about it. You know, the, the, yes, you're absolutely right. It was always, you have to meet face-to-face. -face. Now you meet mask-to-mask -mask or Zoom-to-Zoom, -Zoom, whichever, whatever works, right? Um, we This is probably the first part of my career where we have, you know, closed deals without actually having met all the, you know, principles of the business face-to-face. -face. Uh, that's rare. We still find a way to, to um, you know, kind of get, into that room one-to-one. -one. Um, we're fortunate enough to have a UK team as well as a US team. So, um, you know, we, we've been busy. As you guys know, we've done six deals in the last year. So, you, you know, you make it happen, but it is unusual to be able to say, you know, I've never, we're going to meetings now face-to-face -face and say like, yeah, it's great to meet you for the first time face-to-face, -face, but after the deal is closed. Yeah, it, it's it's changed, Anthony, and you know, Phil's, Phil's exactly right. It's, you know, we've been, I've been fortunate enough to be doing deals with Charles River for you know, a while now. And we've picked up the pace the last few years. And we've done, strangely, I would say we've done more deals during COVID than we did prior. And that's just unique to Charles River. I know, you know we've, it's been public. We've done a lot of M&A. We've done five deals just this year um, and a couple last year, um, at the beginning of the pandemic. It, it is strange. It is makes it torture to do facility tours and you're doing webcams and Zooms and you're trying to leverage. And we have, you know, 120 sites in 30 countries. So we're leveraging our resource. We have you know, people, the Charles River employees and expertise in all these countries. So we can leverage those, whether they be the UK or continent of Europe. But it makes it harder and you're not doing as much face-to-face. -face. So we, I guess it has, it's, if you were to ask me, Anthony, two years ago, would we have done these deals in this? I would have said no. You know, of course yeah. not. 
Yeah. I'm not going to be able to do these deals and do the face-to-face and get to know them and meet L1 through L3s. And even though we've been limited in the scope of everything we've been able to do in a normal diligence, as I'm sure Phil and everybody else has, it hasn't slowed us down. Um, and we've been able to manage it, you know, be doing more targeted tours and getting to still meet people, you know, masked, you know, on a diligence site toward going. I even did a meeting in a site, you know, a full manager meeting outdoors and one deal. You know, last year where I did the whole meeting and we did it outside. So we, you, you figure it out. But, but it, you know, hopefully we'll crawl out of it faster over the next six or nine months. Yeah, no, we've seen it again and again, and it's been sort of perverse that the the, the pandemic has given us this ironic uh, tailwind. And you, know, Joe, I know that you know some of your assets, uh, Charles River. I mean, many, many of your assets at Charles River have materially uh, contributed to pandemic response. And obviously that, that has a tailwind and a criticality. And as you say, you're just going to make it happen uh, whichever way you can. I think you know, we, we also benefit from having a London office as well, uh, but it does make it, uh, it does make it very hard indeed. Uh, and it's just a sort of, you know, tinged with sadness that we don't, we don't get together uh, and exchange ideas. Uh, this is about as good as it gets for now. Joe, Phil, this was great. I think we could have spoken for much longer. It's really nice to introduce the two of you. It's great to see, uh, the different perspectives of private equity and strategics, and especially interesting to see uh, not so far apart as one might naively uh, have imagined. So thank you both very much indeed for a, a great conversation. Thank you, Anthony. And Phil, it was really, really great to meet you, and hopefully this will start. Yeah, if you're at BPI next touch. week, uh, we'll see you at BPI maybe. All right. I'm at BPI next week. Great. Me too. So Sounds see you good. around. Have a, I'll, you I'll have that beer. Bye, everyone. Thank you. We now come to the third Padufa segment of the season. Anthony, would you like to introduce this episode's Padufa forecast? Yes, love to. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, the Padufa forecast is Christina Fuentes' brainchild, uh, where she talks us through imminent approval events in the field. Sometimes there are some, sometimes there aren't. Uh, so over to Christina now for what's coming up. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another segment of Padufa Forecasts. Today's an exciting episode as we have an upcoming Padufa to put on your radar. Mark your calendars for October 1st. Gilead is seeking label expansion for their CAR-T product, Tacardis, and they expect to receive a response from the FDA by October 1st. Tacardis was first approved last July, 2020, for the treatment of relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Earlier this year, Gilead submitted a supplemental BLA to the FDA for Decardis, and they received priority review by the FDA. As you may recall, that means they expect to get a response within six months. If approved, Decardis will be used to treat adults with relapsed refractory B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL for short in the rest of the segment. Now approximately a thousand patients are treated with, for ALL each year. 75% of those cases are B-cell precursor ALL. Now this is a serious disease where less than half of the people over 20 years of age 
survive this illness. Data was recently released from the Pivotal Phase II International Multicenter Study for Tocardis and the treatment of ALL. 55 patients were enrolled and 71% of patients achieved a complete response. This is a remarkable news. Now, if Tocardis is approved, it'll be for the treatment of patients 20 years of age and older. What's interesting is that Kimraya, another CAR-T product, is also approved for the treatment of ALL, but in that case, it's for the treatment of pediatric, so young children and then adults up to the age of 25. That means if Tocardis is approved, there will be a five-year overlap between these two products, ages 20 and 20 through 25, that would have the option to be treated either using Kimraya or Tocardis. Another point that's interesting is that if Tocardis is approved for the treatment of ALL, this will be the fourth approval in cell and gene therapy this year. Interestingly, all approvals thus far within the U.S. have been CAR-T based products. That's compared to last year where there was only one approval in the cell gene therapy space within the U.S. and that again was Tocardis. That's all for today and I look forward to tuning in next week as we talk about some additional upcoming PDUFAs including Siltocell at the end of November as well as some phase three trials that are ongoing and where we are expecting BLA submissions at the end of this year or early 2022. That's all. Bye-bye. Thank you, Christina. It's great to be back on schedule and to have been able to finally address these questions around the financial landscape in the industry. But Anthony, I'd like to know if your answer to my question at the beginning still holds true. So which between private equity and strategics would you prefer to have invest in your business? You know, Georgie, what I learned today is it's, it's just not that simple. Uh, private equity and strategics are, of course, much more aligned than the stereotypes would lead us to believe. Joe LaPlume actually texted me just after we finished recording and said, sorry if we didn't get fireworks like you wanted. You know, obviously, you know, fireworks are fun, but it's, it's just not the way it is uh, in these relationships. And I think, you know, what Joe and Phil showed us was that private equity and strategics are ultimately chasing the final greater good. Mm. They're just perhaps coming in in a slightly different part of the game. And I think it's a natural sequencing that private equity investment uh, precedes strategic investment a lot of the time. And that's the way uh, that, uh, that's the way that, that podcast left my mind uh, thinking about this question, uh, Georgie. So we may not have had the fireworks you were looking for, but we did get the answers you were looking for. I think we got lots of answers. I think we got almost all of the answers we were looking for, Georgie. You know, money's not enough. It's not us versus them. Models are essential, but they're, they're, they are also necessary, but not sufficient to do the perfect deal to grow the industry. 
Thank you also to everyone for joining us for this episode of Facilitate Talks. Make sure you check out our other episodes on demand via the Facilitate website. You can also find both Facilitate and Dark Horse Consulting on LinkedIn and Twitter. That's all from us, though, for today. We'll see you for the next one. Goodbye. Thank you.